Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Zach, are we are we recording yet? Yeah, I just hit record. So, hey, Dr. Place, let me just, um, in case you don't know, the reason I reached out to you is because you, you may not know much about Zach and I, but we're, we're kind of in this low-carb space. We're kind of promoting some of the health stuff, and we've, we've got pretty pretty big audience right now. And one of the things, you know, I do is, you know, I'm a big proponent of red meat. I eat a lot of it. In fact, that's pretty much all I eat. I'm kind of this crazy carnivore guy. But uh, <laughs> But, you know, one of the arguments, you know, and I think we're making a, a more and more compelling argument that beef is not something horrible that we need to avoid. It's actually health food. And I think that's, I think we're really making some traction there. But one of the problems we often run into is, you know, well, it's awful for the environment. It's killing the world. It's destroying the planet. And I can't really speak to that because I'm not an expert. You know, I, I could, I could read, I could parrot what I've read, but I'm not really there. And so... When I was, and I have a lot of cattle ranchers that follow me because they, they like what I'm saying, right? And so I was asking Trent, you know, where can I get some help with it? And several of them said, you need to talk to Dr. Sarah Place. She's a, she knows what she's talking about. So that's why I reached out, and I, and I really uh, appreciate uh, your your uh, uh, willingness to come on and talk to us about this stuff. And, you know, I think there's a, one of the problems we have uh, is, you know, where do I get my information about cattle in the environment or animal agriculture in the environment in jail? And generally, it's coming from a vegan propaganda film, and I think this I think this has become the sort of the national narrative or the what you know the, the, the social conscious. And I think, you know, there, maybe there's some truth to that, but I think there's like anything there's there's gray areas, there's black, there's white, and I just think we we've, we've all kind of hook, line, and sinker taken taken this. We got to give up meat. It's the best thing we can do to save the planet. And and I just I'm not sure that that's the right answer. So hopefully you can maybe help teach us a little bit about this stuff and because I, I try to tell the people that if you're going to advocate meat or, or or chicken or whatever or animal products in the diet it's great that you understand the health arguments but you also are going to need to to be more uh, educated and well-versed in some of these environmental issues and hopefully you can kind of you know tell us about about that and so i know and, and i want to be clear i know because you have a relationship with the uh, national cattlemen's association i believe and i think it's important that, that we disclose who we're talking to and all that stuff because there's going to be people that they're going to say, well, there's biases and that. But can you just briefly tell us a little bit about your background, Dr. Place, and then we can get into some of this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So I do work for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And so um, a little bit of background about NCBA. Uh, it is a membership organization. So producers pay dues to the members of National Cattlemen's. But National Cattlemen's also acts as what we call a contractor with the beef checkoff. Um, So if you're not familiar with that, there's lots of checkoff programs for commodities in the United States. So, for example, for dairy, for beef, or even for Christmas trees, there's a checkoff program. Um, And these are programs that are where the producers themselves put money up front for research and promotion of their products. 
Um, so again, we act as a contractor with the with the checkoff and get money to do research that relates to beef. And so one of those program areas is sustainability. And so that's what I'm in charge of here at NCBA is doing research on beef sustainability in terms of measuring where we're at, because obviously you can't manage what you don't measure, first and foremost, um, and looking at ways of how can we improve, right? What can we do to get better? Because we're always interested in that as well. So. Um, again, we do research in a whole wide variety of topics, um, but that is specifically what I focus on. Um, a little bit more about my background. I am from a dairy farm in upstate New York, so I grew up in animal agriculture um, and have been in this field of doing research and studying and thinking about this issue for a decade. So before I was at um, NCBA, I was actually at Oklahoma State University as a faculty member for almost four years doing a teaching and research. Uh, appointment. So, kind of my background, I've been measuring uh, measured cow gas for, for several years. People, that's always a, a conversation starter for people. Um, and uh, so, I have a background with the live animal side, but also some of this modeling stuff that we do at NCBA to really evaluate where we're at. So, that's a little background. I think a lot of your questions and a lot of like the stuff you brought up, it really comes down to um, people are confused as to how the food they eat gets to their plate. And I really sympathize with that because there's just so much information that's coming at people and it's really hard for, for you to know, you know, what's a trustworthy source and what's not. Um, if you're not thinking about it all the while or studying it, it can be, it can be overwhelming. So um, I think that's great that you guys are active in this area because clarifying some of these things and hopefully just providing the information and let people make their own decisions. That's really what we're all about. Yeah, Dr. Place. So just to be clear, um, and I and I think, you know, we talk about climate change, we talk about an anthropocentric model that, that, that humans are impacting that. And, and I believe that you, you, you are, you are supportive of that, that we are doing things, you know, as humans that are, that are kind of messing up the environment so i think that's clear because there's people out there that you know will say that well the humans have no impact on the environment whatsoever it's all about the sun and so there's you know and again i i'm not an expert in any of these areas so i can't really comment one way or another but you would say you're in the camp that we are as humans causing damage to the environment is that correct yeah so yeah we call it anthropogenic caused um climate change so that is a pretty solid area of science and that's another great example of where um, people's values and proposed solutions of what we're going to do about it start conflicting and then it can can lead to a lot of contention in that area. But the science itself in terms of the fact that the concentrations or the amounts of greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere and how that affects essentially the heat balance of Earth, that's pretty solid science. That's just physics, right? And we've known that for a long period of time. Um, again, where the wheels fall off that conversation and where it gets contentious is what are you going to do about it, right? Because um, even with fossil fuels burning things like gasoline and coal, uh, it's clear that that has increased the concentration of carbon dioxide, one of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. But of course, fossil fuels have also improved the livelihoods of billions of people around the world, right? So every single one of these issues um, is contentious because there's a whole wide array of trade-offs, right? There is no free lunch in any of this stuff. Um, but that said, when it comes to cattle, uh, livestock specifically, and contributions to climate change, oftentimes the percentages are inflated that have been used. 
or what happens is global percentages for all of livestock are used and applied to, say, the state of California, for example, right? And just beef, beef uh, production, for example. So that's what's really key is these percentages get kind of a little loosey-goosey in how they're applied. And it's kind of comes back to that, that old saying, right, of there's lies, damn lies, and statistics, essentially. So we fall into that trap a lot in this, uh, in this topic area. So I was, you know, I've been, I've been looking, you know, I've, I've seen data from the EPA looking at U.S. numbers, and and then, you know, we, because we live in the United States, but, you know, we can say that, you know, looking at the U.S. numbers, and I think, that, you know, maybe you'll concur that the, the EPA data is probably pretty re- reasonable to look at shows that that you know cattle probably only emit maybe about two percent of our greenhouse gases, and all of animal agriculture is maybe. You know, maybe not. I think something like nine percent or something like that. So it's 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 smaller than the you know what we often are told is it's the number one cause of climate you know uh, global green, greenhouse gases. Uh, you know, but we look at the U.S. system and it's very it's very intensive, but then again, it's very very efficient. And so, can you comment on you know a lot of times we're seeing that I see data promoted by people that that, that really don't like us eating animals that say that. You know, uh, animal emissions are responsible for 30% of the world's greenhouse gases. Where are they getting those numbers from? Is there some sort of manipulation of the data that, that occurs that? And what is the, what are the real numbers that we, we might want to better reference? Sure. So uh, concerns about the environmental impact of animal ag are not new. If you go back and look at the literature, um, you know, honestly, this has been an issue for like 100 years. But... More recently, this issue of climate change and animal ag kind of got renewed with a report that came out in the year 2006 from the UN Food and Agriculture Organization called Livestock's Long Shadow. Um, And so that report really spurred a lot of the interest and a lot of the documentaries and a lot of the percentages that you hear recently. Uh, So that report used what's called life cycle assessment. So it's where you look at the entire life cycle of a product, and in this case, animal products. So you account for emissions that come from feed production, from the animals themselves, their manure, um, everything throughout the whole supply chain, including what was included in this report was anything that we call land use change. Um, So that's taking land from one use to another. And a big part of that was um, accounting for deforestation in places like South America, right? And about all the carbon that's stored in trees, in the soils, um, and the lost photosynthetic capacity of trees to take up carbon out of the air, right? Uh, that was counted as an emission source. So that report pegged livestocks, all livestocks, global emissions at 18% of the global emissions. Okay, and in that report, that of that 18%, a third was deforestation. Okay, so again, that's a pressing issue, but it doesn't apply to the United States, right? We're not driving deforestation with our livestock production here in the U.S., even though, again, it is an important issue. Um, that report is also the origin of all comparisons of cattle or livestock to cars. Uh, Because in the executive summary of that report that was chock full of great information, uh, 400 pages of it, there was just one sentence that said, these emissions are greater than all transportation, okay? And it turned out that actually isn't accurate, okay? Because there was, as I mentioned, a life cycle assessment method used for livestock, but for transportation, they just looked, looked at what comes out the tailpipes of vehicles, right? Not necessarily what goes into building airplanes, 
uh, all of our vehicles, maintaining all of our road infrastructure, like everything you would account for in a true LCA of transportation, if that makes sense. Um, so I don't know if you talked to Dr. Frank Mintliner at UC Davis, he was my major professor, but that was a big thing that came out a couple years uh, after that report is he published a rebuttal, if you will, to that report and kind of clarified some of those things. Uh, the FAO, the Food and Ag Organization that published it, actually uh, did acknowledge the fact that that was an inappropriate comparison. They've never made that comparison again, and yet almost all these news articles that you see, right, that compare cattle or livestock and transportation, that's where it comes from. Uh, in the United States specifically, 26% of our emissions, according to the EPA, come from transportation. And all of animal agriculture, like all the direct emissions come from the animals themselves, and the manure is about 3.8% of emissions. So it's not even close in the United States. So that's kind of a little bit of background, right? So some of those numbers you'll see globally, the, the globally correct number, that's a life cycle number, is actually 14.5. That's the FAO's updated number. Again, that does not apply to the U.S. In the United States, it's 3.8% of direct emissions. All of agriculture, all crops, all plant, you know, any plants that we eat, uh, grow to feed the animals that we eat directly, plus animal ag, is 8.6% of emissions in the United States. So again, it's it's not nothing, but it's the trade-off. we got to eat. It's going to produce emissions. We're looking at how we can cut those emissions. Uh, but I worry a lot of this conversation where people say meat is the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions has totally distracted us from like the elephant in the room, which is we burn fossil fuels. Right? Again, that's not an easy thing to solve either, but it distracts people from the elephant in the room when it comes to climate change. So, Dr. Place, what do we know or do you know specifically kind of what makes the United States processes more efficient? Like, how are we getting below 4% whereas the rest of the world is upwards into the 14% range? Yeah, so it's kind of twofold. Um, so if we think about what that percent actually means, right, that's saying what is the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions that come from animal ag divided by total emissions? Um, so there's two things going on there. Uh, one, we just emit more greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, right? I mean. As, as we all know, we're talking on the internet right now, we're burning fossil fuels to run electricity, all these different things that we do in the United States. Uh, so we are, per capita, per person, we burn the most fossil fuels in the world. Uh, China actually burns more in total, but they burn less per person and emit less greenhouse gas emissions. So that's one factor is the fact that we just, we're a big country and we use a lot of energy and we produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. The second thing, though, is that we are more efficient from a standpoint of how we produce food. And it's not just animal ag, it's all of our agriculture in the United States. So uh, when we think about just beef specifically, a big driver of that is how many, how many animals we have, like what's the size of the total cattle herd in the United States versus how much beef we produce. Um, so we are the number one beef producer in the world. We produce about 26 billion pounds of beef in the United States. And this past January, we had a cattle herd, all beef and dairy cattle together, about 94 million head of cattle, um, which has shrunk over time, which is something that people don't realize. Um, but if we were to go to the number two country in the world, Brazil, in terms of beef production, they make about 21 billion pounds of beef, a lot of beef as well, but they have a cattle herd altogether, about 220 million head. Okay, So they have twice as many cattle to make less beef than we do. 
Um, and because the cattle themselves are the source of a lot of the emissions in terms of what they emit directly, but also all the feed that has to be fed to them, uh, that's a big driver of the whole system. So anytime we make agriculture more productive and do more with less or more efficient, we drive down emissions in terms of our environmental impact and any other beyond carbon emissions or environmental impacts in all different ways. So when we when we talk kind of a bit about like the deforestation side of things, which which you kind of mentioned is more of an issue in other countries, uh, less so in the United States, uh, is that mainly because of the amount of crops that are required to grow to feed the cattle, and less so due to the actual like space being taken up by the cattle? And if so, does that mean like would we be able to? greatly improve the efficiency and sustainability by essentially returning those crop fields to grazing pastures for cattle? Is that something that is being looked at in any way or is it being studied in any, any shape or form? Yeah, so this is a very uh, complex issue and I'm not an expert in the deforestation area, so I will put that disclaimer out there first. Um, a lot of it that has taken place in places like Brazil or other parts of South America has been kind of twofold land that's been cleared to establish both cattle pastures but also row crop production right so um, it's a complex issue and it's driven by global demand for the products that are being produced in those countries um, so it, it's it's a tough issue to tackle uh, kind of related to your question what about you know what are we what are we doing about it there's absolutely a lot of research taking place on what those key drivers are but also, as I just mentioned, this whole more with less, what we call intensification, right, or sustainable intensification. There's a lot of recognition that that is a key way for globally agriculture to have less of a strain on the planet. Right? If we're able to do more with less, uh, get more yields per acre for our plant agriculture, uh, have more integration of cattle with cropping and with good pasture management, we're able to not have to use as much land, right? And that puts less pressure on those local populations. Uh, those people, they're just trying to make a living as well to say that I'm going to clear this land, right, to to provide for my family. Because that, that's what makes it complicated is that there's people's lives at stake, right, that are, that are living down there. There's a reason why this stuff is taking place. Dr. Pasol, uh, you know, because I know you talked about Brazil and you talked about the United States, but I, my understanding is, mo you know, as far as beef production, but I am understanding that most of the cattle in the world are actually in places like India, where they even have these huge, huge herds. You know, again, they're, you know, obviously much of the cattle there is, is off limits and they're not well, you know, certainly not managed appropriately. And so I've seen that the, the, the biggest problems with, with cattle are, are India and Africa. Is there any truth to that or am I just... Yeah, so it's it's a very, again, it's a very localized issue. And, and to your point, there's cultural things that come into play, right? So boss indicus cattle in, in India are viewed as sacred. And so there are a lot of cattle. There's a lot of cattle. There's also a lot of buffalo, actually, in, um, in India. So uh, that example kind of highlights the paradox of if you look at per capita consumption of beef in India, it's very, very low, right? And so if, if less meat consumption meant less greenhouse gas emissions, they should have very low emissions, but of course they don't because they have a lot of cattle that are, that are just there. Um, they're also a big dairy consuming society, so a lot of the cattle are for making milk as well. Yeah, so this, this is a key issue is kind of, as I mentioned earlier, is essentially 
again, it's more with less or productivity of the animals themselves. In parts of Africa, we also have challenges with a lot of heat stress or disease pressures on those animals, um, or just poor feed quality, the nutrition that the animals themselves get, they're not able to be very productive. So they have larger herds relative to the amount of food that they produce. Or in some of those cultures, you know, the livestock are a source of wealth for a family, right? They're gonna have a certain number of goats or cattle or whatever it may be because they're a source of wealth, a piggy bank, if you will, for that family. So again, it's, it's a challenge, but those regions that you identified, a lot of Sub-Saharan Africa and the Indian subcontinent tend to have much higher carbon footprints for beef because they have so many more animals relative to their production. And that, that is true. I saw something you put out the other day, I follow you on Twitter, and you talked about that if the, the rest of the world could achieve the efficiency of something like 1960s USA, the, the overall greenhouse gas emissions would drop by, you know, some number, I think it's something like 30 to 40 percent. Can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, so that's kind of coming back to this concept of how many live animals does it take to produce beef? Um, so in the U.S. and around the world, we've made a lot of progress. So the global average has come down in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and the number of cattle to produce beef. But the global average is still behind where we were in the United States in the 60s. Um, so that's something I think that's always surprising to people. But it really comes down to what we've done here in the U.S., in terms of one we have the natural resources we have a good climate for growing cattle that's why we're a big beef country but we've also made a tremendous amount of investment in the science of agriculture right through a lot of what we call our land-grant universities like oklahoma state where i used to work university of california davis in california every state has a land-grant university and there are people that dedicate their lives to saying how can we get better and help our farmers and work with our farmers to achieve a better outcome and the proof is in the pudding, if you will, in that, because we are the most efficient in the world in so many of these different areas. And that's really come through investment in research, R&D, right? That's, that's what makes the difference. Um, so that's always what kind of frustrates me about this, this conversation is to talk about dietary shifts. If we could put some of that investment money into some of these countries that need it in terms of improving their agriculture, we could have transformational effects for those people's lives in terms of making it better. They just need the money to be invested in R&D in their, in their countries. Let, let me, there, there are so many, I mean, there's so much stuff that, that, that we could potentially cover here. I want to just kind of go through piece by piece because another, you know, we've talked about greenhouse gases and, you know, people, uh, you know, you know, it's, 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 you know, belching, not, you know, coming from the other end, people don't understand that. You know, I think I, you know, and I've seen some stuff about things you can do to mitigate that if we're really worried about that. I know there's, I saw something about an al a red algae that they've discovered in Australia that can significantly cut that. And and I and I think maybe those things are things that can be done either to further mitigate that. Can you talk about just the progress we have made over the past, say, uh, you know, a few decades with regard to to mitigating those those uh, those greenhouse gases because we are getting more efficient and. Can you compare like the numbers in the 70s versus what we're getting out, what we're doing right now today? And some, and, and talk about some of the ways we've achieved those things. Yeah, so this uh, intensification process has been our major driver in driving down emissions. So we haven't necessarily used a lot of tools directly to try to cut methane emissions. Um, to back up, I think you guys had Peter on talking about essentially a ruminant function, right? So methane is a, it's a natural, 
part of the whole rumen digestion process, right? They have a trillions of microbes that live in their gut. Uh, they make a lot of CO2, just like when we drink any or partake in any fermented uh, foods, right? There's a lot of gas that gets produced. And so most of the interest in reducing methane historically has been from a standpoint of feed efficiency, uh, because methane is a loss of feed energy, if you will. Um, so there's there's some of the things that we do from a feeding perspective. Uh, one of the things that surprises people is when we put cattle in feed yards at the end of their life for finishing, and we feed them more of a grain-based diet, that actually lowers their methane emissions as compared to when they're eating grass. So that that's one of those things that we have done that's directly cut emissions. The bigger thing, though, has been genetic selection for cattle. So uh, selecting animals that grow quicker and that grow larger, so we get more beef per animal, and doing right by uh, getting cows, the females, bred on time and having a calf once per year, which is ideal. Those are the type of things that actually help cut our emissions somewhat indirectly, again, because we're reducing the size of the herd relative to where, what, we, what we had in the past. So specifically in the 1970s, uh, we peaked in terms of per capita beef consumption somewhere around 75, 76. We had the largest cattle herd back then too. Today we make roughly the same amount of beef, but we use a third fewer animals. Okay, so it's a third fewer cows belching out methane and eating feed and everything else. So that's really been our key driver is that genetic improvement and then all those other things that we've learned through science, how to better feed cattle, better manage cattle. When they're healthy and happy, they do better. And so that's been our major driver. Dr. Place, and I want to get I want to get to this, you know, at, at some point, you know, because there's a, the term that people like to use called factory farming. They use it as a pejorative term. And I know that's kind of analogous to what you're talking about with sustainable intensification. I think we need to we need to certainly address that. But I want to continue sort of, you know, working our way through this environmental stuff, you know. So one of the other topic is, you know, cows drink like a billion gallons of water to make a pound of beef. You know, and I, I don't remember the number, but, you know, we see these these really high numbers that that. that you know, the beef on your plate, you know, it's going to you're going to consume like 12 swimming pools worth of water to have a steak. Can you talk again a little bit about those numbers, how they're derived, how some of these people that, that quote these really extremely high numbers come up with those numbers? And then what might be a more realistic view based on, you know, current technology, so on and so forth. I know there's a difference between rainfall and gray water and blue water and green water. Can you talk about those things a little bit? Absolutely. So, uh you know, greenhouse gas emissions, when they're emitted, they're in the atmosphere, they affect everything, right? I mean, they're, they're a globalized issue, if you will. Water use is a highly localized issue. Um, so the water footprint of beef, uh, as you alluded to, you're going to see, if you look even in the peer-reviewed literature, huge range in terms of what's out there. Uh, anything from like 100 gallons per pound of beef to 25,000 gallons per pound of beef, which is ridiculous. Uh, so the reason you see those numbers is twofold. One is how they're derived, as you alluded to, um, and the second one is actual genuine differences in production systems. So the first one, how do you calculate a water footprint? Um, it's similar to what I mentioned earlier about life cycle assessment. You look at the production chain, the supply chain, if you will, of beef, and you add up all the different uses of water. What's different for water footprints is there are different types of water that can be included. Uh, there's blue water, which is surface and groundwater. So, for example, uh, drinking water for cattle. And then if we used any irrigation water for pastures or for crops, that would be considered blue water use that got pumped out of the ground. And then there's green water. 
green water is essentially precipitation water. So when you see those really high values for beef, usually green water is accounted for because these analyses will say, you know, there's a couple 300 million acres of grazing lands in the United States and every flake of snow and every drop of water that falls from the sky uh, is going to be counted towards the water footprint of beef, right? So those numbers, that's where it gets a little inflated. And that's also pretty questionable in terms of a methodology because obviously whether cattle occupy that land or not, the rain's going to fall, right? Um, and then there is gray water, which is pretty minor. Gray water is just the water required to dilute out any sort of pollution in a water stream. So those are the three types of water. So for beef, the vast, vast majority of water use is in feed, whether it's the feed they eat when they're grazing or feed it and we're feeding to them in a feed yard or any sort of uh, other system, hay, whatever it may be. So 95% of beef's water footprint, the research that we've done and it's confirmed by many other uh, peer-reviewed publications is embedded in the feed. And that's true whether you're accounting for green or blue water, okay? Uh, the other thing, as I mentioned earlier, is the production system differences. So we just finished a project where we're, we're gonna get this published soon, looking at the entire US beef system, but broken out by different regions. So if you go to the eastern United States, the blue water use uh, is very, very low, right? Because essentially just the drinking water for the cattle. So our water footprints are super low in the eastern U.S. If you go to the western U.S., and again, you're a ranch where you have to irrigate a pasture for a few months out of the year or irrigate your crops, your blue water use is higher, okay? So it really, really depends on where you are. And last thing on that, blue water use doesn't mean the water is destroyed, of course right? Uh, if cattle drink the water, they, you know, they urinate it out and they defecate it out just like you or I do, right? It goes back to the ecosystem, so it's not really lost. Um, and I think that's something that people forget is that the water cycle that you learned about in like primary school, it's still true, right? It's not, it's not something that went away. What we really care about for agriculture and water use is when we're say using surface water or pumping irrigation water out of the ground faster than it can be recharged right and that's that's a real sustainability concern but a water footprint doesn't tell you jack squat about that actually because you don't know where the water is coming from you don't know if it's a water stress region if the blue water is being used at a sustainable rate uh you know it's not a big deal right so that's like a lot of these footprints the footprints tell you something, but they don't tell you what people think it does usually or how they use it, right? If you say, well, it's X number of showers when you eat a steak, that's it's not like that, again, that water is gone, right? And it's usually global, again, a global average that's being used, which is not appropriate for every location. Yeah, so, you know, and again, in addition to them urinating and defecating, I mean, just breathing, they're gonna be breathing out a lot of water, you know, so they're returning most of that water back to the environment, it sounds like. Um, this is one thing that, um, well, I, I'm going to continue down this vein. So let's talk about, you know, when we're talking about the, the carbon life cycle, for instance, you know, we see these emissions. We don't talk so much about, you know, the soil aspect of that. And I, and I know there's been efforts, uh, guys like Alan Savory and Joel Salatin, some of these other folks that are big proponents of what they call regenerative agriculture, where, you know, depending how they rotate the, the animals through different pastures on a, on a, you know, on a short basis, rather than let them graze it all down. Do you do you feel that that is something that, that should be incorporated or can be incorporated 
Uh, because, you know, regardless, and this is another fact, you know, I, I literally have people that tell me that an animal that is finished, you know, a, a grain finished animal is an animal that will spend its entire life in a cage being force fed corn. And I mean, you know, obviously you and I both know that, that that's, that's that's not anywhere near the reality. But again, if we if we assume that most of these animals, whether they're fully pastured or pastured and finished on grain, spent a majority of their life in pasture, are there efforts uh, to to mitigate some of this th- these emissions via 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 proper pasturing, and how is that going? Uh, is that is that financially difficult for the ranchers, or is that something that that's really a kind of a it doesn't really make a difference to them, and it's just something they should do anyway? Can you talk a little bit about that that aspect of it? Yeah, yeah. So just a, a little bit of background. Usually in life cycle assessments, most of them uh, they just ignore soil carbon changes, right? They assume that the soil carbon is at what we call equilibrium. It's not necessarily gaining or losing any. And we assume that the the carbon that the plants, the animals eat, that they, you know, gets uh, taken up by photosynthesis is equal to what they breathe out as CO2, just like you or I would breathe out. So usually it's just ignored in most analyses. Um, so some of those folks that you mentioned and some of that, that uh, work that's been done out there it is a very great interest, but it's one of those areas where there's lots of interest, but the data isn't there to say definitively, you know, if we graze in this way with this management system, we're going to offset all of these emissions. And again, part of that is it's driven by where you are, right? If you're where Joel Salatin is in like the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, where you get lots of moisture, beautiful green area, I mean, it makes a heck of a lot of sense especially when you have willing people to do grass-finished beef and to, to do that kind of intensive management system that he does. Where I'm sitting in Denver, Colorado, and out here on the eastern plains of Colorado, where you get 14 inches of rain a year, it's going to be really hard to change the soil carbon in that situation. And that's what's key. It's, it's driven a lot by climate, previous management. You know, that's what's going to drive your capacity to actually take up carbon in the soil. So if you're in a situation where somebody's grown continuous corn for 40 years in, in soils and really degraded them, you can absolutely convert that to pasture and do an excellent job and build soil organic matter, store carbon. Um, but it's a very, very localized issue. So that's one of our challenges at the National Cattlemen's is saying, what what rate do you use for soil carbon sequestration? And how do I tell somebody in Southern Arizona, this is how you should manage your operation. They know what's best for them, right? Compared to, again, if you're east of the Mississippi, you have a lot more tools in your toolbox in terms of manipulating soil processes. But uh, kind of summing that all up, it is really important, right? And keeping, one of the things that we don't get credit for, if you will, is what I just mentioned, right? If we have all this, what we call short grass prairie on the, on the plains, uh, and tall grass prairie, keeping the soil not tilled and not letting that carbon go into the atmosphere and having grazing animals on it is actually really, really important, right? It's hard to talk about that because that's like a potential emission if we didn't have ruminants, we didn't have cattle, but um, that is a really key area is saying how do we manage our systems better, but also how do we keep grazing lands as grazing lands and not till them up? And that's a difficult issue too. It's all about you know, if somebody owns an acre of land, they're going to do what they want to do with it. But, but you know, we, we need to think about those things as well. Let me, uh, Zach, do you have a question or I'll jump in again? Yeah, I'll just add one thing or ask one thing because this kind of relates a lot to that whole thing is like 
along with like the sustainability side of things, one thing I think we see a lot when we hear like the word factory farm, which I think is, you know, be quickly, if not already become a buzzword in the sense that people don't really know what they mean when they say factory farming. Um, and, you know, you might get someone who's really knowledgeable, like uh, Peter Pallerstead, he hears factory farming and he thinks efficiency. Uh, you hear someone else or someone else hears factory farming immediately go to that YouTube video they saw where there was, you know, chickens jammed in these tiny cages and, you know, cows with holes on their side and things like that. And um, I've always thought that was interesting because, you know, I, I grew up, I spent most of my life in Wisconsin for about 20 years. So I've seen tons of family owned dairy farms, you know, bigger ones, smaller ones, everything in between. And, you know, I've never personally seen a scenario like that, like you see in some of those videos. And I don't doubt that they're out there. Um, but my question has always been like, you know, what are we look? do we have an idea of like percentages of like, you know, of farms that are more or less what I've seen where, you know, these farmers look at these cows, uh, as pets, like they love these cows to the degree that someone would love their family dog. Um, you know, I used to be a school teacher and I had students who, you know, they knew every one of the cows by name and they even had, I even had one student who had such a cool setup at their farm where he would get text notifications if anything registered with a cow that was less than ideal and he would he'd be ready to run out of class if he needed to to go take care of that cow so um you know there's there seems to be a quite an array of different views on like how these animals are treated versus what they would maybe experience if they were just left to their own um demise out in, out in nature is is that something that uh that you have a lot of information or knowledge about in terms of how these animals are treated versus um maybe you know inhumanely and humanely yeah, so that's a great question. So to back up, just to give you a bit of information, like how does how is beef even produced in the United States, right? What does the beef industry look like? So um, we, in terms of beef production, for the most part, how it goes is cattle will be born and raised on what we call cow-calf operations. They can then go either directly to a feed yard or they can go to what we call the stalker phase of the industry where they graze more after they've been weaned off of mama's milk. Um, and then they'll go to a feed yard. So most, again, most 95%, 97% of the U.S. beef supply is going to end up in a feed yard, whether it's small or large, by the end of its life. So in terms of numbers, and the reason why, you know, most of your, your audience, you know, they're, they're going to know, they're going to see cow-calf operations because there's 720,000 cow-calf operations in the United States, and the average herd size is 45 head. The median herd size is only 90 head. So most of the production is smaller operations in the United States. There's only about 2.1 million farms. So a significant portion of all U.S. farms are actually beef cattle operations, right? So it's a big part of rural America. It's a big part of uh, our whole farm economy. So the industry itself, and we kind of think about it, it's almost like an hourglass shape. We have a tremendous number of producers that are cow-calf operations. You'll have a bit smaller number that are stocker operations. And then when you get to feed yards, the industry shrinks a lot, right? So most of our production takes place on just, you know, even 10 or 15,000 operations in the United States. Um, and that consolidation really happens because, mostly because of the economics of the business. You don't make a lot of money feeding cattle and feed yards. And so there's an economy of scale aspect that kicks in. So I think when people think of, you know, so-called factory farming, they think of a feed yard, right? 
And what a feed yard really is, whether it's only 50 head or 50,000 or 100,000 head, right? If you're thinking in California, uh, Harris Feed Yard is a great example right there on I-5 of the concept is actually the same, whether it's small or large. You know, it's like you got pens of cattle, they have a feed bunk, they're managed well and very consistently to be fed on time and clean water and usually shade and they're hanging out with their buddies and they have lots of room. Usually when you see pictures, it's like when the feed truck is just drove by and they're all stuffed, right, you know, chowing down. And so somebody snaps a picture, but you're not seeing the whole, <laughs> the whole feed yard where, where they actually have lots of space. What's also key in kind of what you mentioned of the management aspect, um, even on those very large yards, every single day, a cowboy or what we call a pen rider will ride through every single one of those pens and look at the animals. Um, because that's that's number one of animal husbandry is you have to take care of those animals. You are the caretaker of them, whether they're on a large operation or not. Um, so that's standard practice that takes place in the industry is they will be checked on every day. We also have things that uh, the National Cattlemen's Youth Association, again, through those checkoff dollars, has promoted to enhance animal well-being. Uh, one of those programs is called Beef Quality Assurance. So it's a training program, a voluntary program that's been around for 25 years where we train employees and the uh, producers themselves how to best feed animals, take care of animals, doctor animals if they are sick, identify sick animals if need be, all those different aspects. So being more proactive on it. And again, that's whether you have 10 head or 10,000 head or however many it is, right? The principles of taking care of animals are the same. Um, I think it makes sense that people get shocked when they see a large operation. I mean, you almost be kind of weird at work shocks, right? I mean, to see a huge, huge operation. So that I think that's a natural uh, reaction to, to see that or to have that reaction when you do see a large operation. But again, the reason there's more of that consolidation at that level is usually just the economics. And some of those larger feed yards are actually still family-owned corporations, or they may be uh you know uh, an investor group may have made an investment but it's still the people that run the operation have the same dedication to caring for cattle you don't get into it to be uh to get rich quick <laughs> for sure so you have to really care about care about animals um and then one other thing you mentioned like the text the text message stuff what, what i think is cool and what we have a lot of opportunity to uh, as we go forward is using technology just like we use, you know, whether it's a Fitbit or whatever else, stuff that monitors you in real time. I think as that technology gets cheaper, we'll be able to use more of that in animal agriculture and animal husbandry and doing even a better job of taking care of the animals in a, in a good way. So to me, that's, that's an exciting thing that we can, uh, again, mm -hmm. use science to, to do better and productivity and doing more with less is not, does not have to be in conflict with good animal welfare like those things need to happen together they're, they're both important yeah you know in the specific piece of technology that i was referring to was was really interesting and it was actually based on a dairy farm so they were more interested in milk production than they were beef production but like it was i i, I we actually did a field trip at that specific um that specific farm and they were i think they were piloting a program so they had some some grants from this technology that was, I believe, based over in Europe originally. Uh, and really what it was, was it allowed the cows to essentially get milked when they wanted to get milked. And the way the student explained it to me is like, 
you know, most dairy operations, you're going to, you're going to milk based on the farmer's schedule when you can. So that's usually in the morning and the evening. And he said, when you leave the cows to kind of like their own schedule, when they want to get milked, they tend to actually want to get milked three times a day. And what they found with the metrics that this machinery got them was a lot of these cows wanted to get milked at like 2 a.m. So like unless you're running a big enough operation where you have like a three shift system of workers coming in at the wee hours of the morning and working a third shift to milk them, you probably wouldn't get that type of productivity and that type of, um, uh, I guess, um, you know, human or, uh, you know, cow where where their cows essentially go get milked when they feel like I need to get milked, uh, which is an issue, I think, because like, you know, a cow who needs to get milk and has to wait a couple hours isn't necessarily an ideal situation. And having those type of metrics come through and then if the cow came through, the machine would actually like it would look at the it would analyze the cow and say like this cow's teat is not is infected or something we need to get take care of it right away we need to remove it from the the milking cycle and address that right away and that's when he would get all the feedback and stuff from it so it's it's cool to see that kind of um that kind of uh technology entering the the business and you know making it as as good as possible for both the cow and the farmer Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Those are robotic milkers, but any kind of like real time sensors like that, that stuff is really, really cool. It's a neat area of research to uh, be more precise in how we manage animals. And that's important too, from a health standpoint for cattle, because they are, of course, they're evolved from uh, prey species, right? They're herd animals. They don't like to show when they're sick. So even when we do have all these cowboys that are looking at cattle all the while and they're well-trained eyes, Sometimes these animals don't like to show that they're not feeling so hot until, you know, they're, they're a little bit sicker than we want them to be. So those type of technologies where we can essentially detect them before they want to show us uh, could be really helpful. Hey folks, Human Performance Outlier podcast is very happy to announce that we have brought on ButcherBox as one of our sponsors. Uh, with ButcherBox, you can get some high quality meat and cut out the middleman so that you save quite a bit on what would normally be the charge you'd get at the grocery store. Uh, With that, on your first order, if you use promo code HPO, you'll get 20% off plus free bacon. Sean, why don't you tell them about your experience with ButcherBox? Yeah, I mean, I've used ButcherBox, you know, for quite a while now. I've I've run through several of their their, uh, different boxes. And, you know, for me, and and by the way, that's a pretty good deal there uh, relative to some of the other stuff I've seen out there. But it has been, uh, you know, very consistently good, a good product. You know, it's always been, you know, the the quality of the meat's been very good. Uh, For you guys that are concerned about it, they are a 100% antibiotic, hormone-free product that is a grass-finished product. The meat comes out of Australia, uh, and it has a very... Uh, I find, you know, because and I'll be honest, I, I, I prefer grain-fed beef in general, but I find that this particular uh, grass-finished product uh, tastes pretty solid. I mean, it's pretty good. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the grass-finished uh, meat can taste a little bit uh, almost gamey, uh, and I don't find that to be the case uh, with, with the Butcher Box product, and probably because of the length of time the animal spent on grass and they get a little bit more marbling in there and I think that helps and so I've had a, uh, a very good experience with them and I highly recommend them. Alright folks head over to butcherbox.com and hit promo code HPO. Thank you and back to the show. Hey Dr. Place so this is uh, and again this is a very controversial topic um, and there's a lot of emotion that goes into this but there's people out there that will say cows are designed to eat grass 
and how dare you feed them anything besides that? And so what is your response to that? Because that's that's a very, you know, even in the people that, that, that support eating beef, there's a big belief that, um, you know, these cows are going to be really sick. And, and we're basically now causing these diabetic obese sick cows that are all full of infections. And we have to give them lots and lots of antibiotics to, 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 to treat the infections because of what we're changing their feed. Now, I've seen, you know, there's not much in the human literature about eating one, you know, grass finished versus grain finished beef out there. I saw one study from Texas A&M, which showed basically no difference. In fact, it actually favored a little bit the grain finished animal with regard to human health. But can you talk about that? Because, I mean, I wasn't around 50,000 years ago when these, some of these ruminant animals were roaming the plant. I don't know if they were eating grass and then sometimes they got into some grain later on, you know, as the grass turned to seed and stuff like that. Can you speak to, I mean, obviously a person that spends their whole life feeding and managing and studying animals probably has more insight to this stuff than someone like myself or some other person, the kind of lay person just says cows are meant to eat grass and a story. Can you talk a little bit more about how we came to feeding the animals like we do today in terms of both animal health uh, and efficiency? Right. So a lot of this is all related back to that unique digestive system that cattle have. So when we're feeding cattle, we always like to say we're not really actually feeding the animal, we're feeding the bugs, right? We're feeding all the microbes that are in the rumen. Um, and that rumen in and of itself is an ecosystem. And that's one of the unique things about ruminant animals. So our cattle, sheep, goats, we got wild animals from bison to giraffes are all ruminant animals. They can actually be very successful on a wide array of diets but you have to manage their transition of those diets properly and, and do pay attention to what you are feeding them, right? So uh, one of those things that, I, again, I think is a misconception is, of course, regardless of its, if it's grain or grass-finished beef in the United States, the vast majority of the animal's life, the vast majority of the feed they eat is grass, right? So it's about, from a life cycle standpoint, it's about 10% of their lifetime diet is going to be grain if we're talking about grain-finished beef. And that's because, they, again, they only spend that four to six months at the end of their life in a feedlot. I also think, and we've had you know tours, and people are very surprised when they go to a feed yard, they think that when they look at that, what we call the feed bunk where the cattle eat, that they're just going to see, like, corn. Like, that's all it is. Uh, but, of course, that's not what we're just feeding them, straight corn. Um, the average diet actually now for finishing what we call that, that end-of-life diet is about 50% corn grains. So it's actually not, it's come down in recent years as we have more feedstuffs available that are essentially leftovers from biofuels and everything else that we're feeding cattle. Um, so when you go to a feed yard like that, most of them will have either a consulting nutritionist or somebody who's a nutritionist on staff that has a PhD in ruminant nutrition that will balance the animal's diets. Um, so that's really key because, again, they're balancing it to keep the rumen pH at a good level, and that's what's important, right? Not, you do not want the rumen to go a lot, to go acidic, and that is what some people get worried about with feeding a lot of corn, and absolutely, if you fed cattle straight corn, did a terrible job of managing it, you would get health issues because you create an acidic environment in the rumen. Um, so when you look at those feedlot diets, again, it's grain, it's going to be byproducts or leftover feeds that we call like dry distiller's grains, corn gluten meal, things like that that have fiber in it, and then they'll always be eating hay as well, right, or some sort of what we call scratch factor fiber, right, in their diet as well. Um, so that is kind of like how we feed cattle in the United States in terms of the history of it. Uh, again, if you go back and look in the literature, even old, 
old photos from the USDA and the Library of Congress. I mean, you can see from in the 1800s, we always fed cattle grain, right? We, we always do that to fatten them up. What changed was really, again, post-World War II with the science investment and the fact that we were better at producing grain in the United States. We kind of changed the rate that we fed cattle grain. We did feed them more towards the end of their diet to get to the point of slaughter or harvest quicker, right? So that has been the transition. Um, again, we've actually come back down in terms of the amount of grain. We probably fed the most grain in those diets in the 80s and the 90s. And then as grain prices went up, we have the ethanol boom, all these different changes. Uh, we're feeding lower grain-based diets in feed yards today. That's one of those historical changes. So it always, I always struggle with that. Is, is it natural or not? Because, I mean, cattle in them of themselves are not natural, right? They're a human creation. They're not the older rocks that we, uh, that we domesticated that are now extinct, right? So, and, and of course, corn itself is a grass. It's the grain uh, that we're feeding the animals. And that has been manipulated over time through domestication and, and genetic selection as well. So it's more about the management. It's more about how we do it, not necessarily corn is good or bad. It's all about we, we the people, are always the weak link in the system, right, and how we manage the animals and how we feed the animals. But, you know, if people want to consume grass-finished beef, we say that's awesome too. That choice exists. Um, there are producers that are providing that product for people. You know, it's more of a preference thing. Uh, there can be some different flavors and some people like you know one over the other and that's that's cool as well so but it's not not again this kind of black or white uh situation that you sometimes hear as you alluded to right that it's either good or bad it's all about the management of the system unless you know just kind of you brought up the oryx you know because i, I see they're backbreeding them in romania and i think there's going to have some 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 actual oryx again maybe by 2025 so that's kind of interesting information out there i don't know if you've sort of seen that before but um when it because you know a couple points you brought out that you know most of the water production or water usage you know water footprints goes into the animal's feet and again even though the animals only eat 10 percent of their diet as grain potentially you know that's still a significant factor and it has an environmental impact and there's a lot of people who will say that that is a you know a huge environmental problem talk about um, you know, I, I guess there's issues with, uh, um, uh, things like antibiotic usage, you know, causing, uh, you know, multi, you know, drug resistant organisms, organisms. I know they've changed some of the, the antibiotic laws recently, and I don't think they're allowed to give ionophores anymore, which were just growth promoting antibiotics. Maybe I'm mistaken on that. Also talk about the use of, uh, hormones, because I know people are, are worried that, eating an animal that's been implanted is somehow going to make them grow a third eyeball or something like that because there's, there's too many hormones in there. I've seen the data on that. And it's, it's pretty underwhelming to me. But if you could kind of just uh, go into some of that stuff and then talk about uh, manure management, because one of the other criticisms about, uh, you know, a feedlot is these animals are, you know, literally just supposedly standing in manure 24 hours a day and that manure is concentrated. And again, it's another uh, you know, emitter problem for for you know greenhouse gases. So can you can you talk about some of the, some of those issues? I know it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So on the on the corn piece, you know, one of the things that uh, this this debate usually gets put into is either animal agriculture or plant agriculture, right? And the reality is the way our food system works is they're all they're all tied together, right? It's not either or; they're they're complementary. And corn is a great example that you know corn production where it takes place 
Uh, we'll often have situations where cattle are grazed on what we call the residue after corn gets harvested, all the stalks and all the leaves, all the stuff that we can't eat or can't use, right? So that's an example of the land base supporting both corn and cattle, right? And the cattle eat some of the stalks, they defecate it out in a more, you know, better manner, if you will, or a manner that feeds the soil because it's already pre-digested for the soil. Um, so that's one example there of how cattle and corn work together. The other is that as corn yields have increased, the amount of land, the amount of uh, irrigation water, if you will, going to corn that feeds cattle has shrunk. Um, so just something that people don't realize, we actually grew more corn in the United States in the 1920s and 30s than we do today, right? Which is not what you would expect if you read a Michael Pollan book, right? But we actually grew more in the past than we grow today. But in the 20s and 30s, corn yields were only like 25 bushels an acre, and today they're 176 bushels an acre, right? So we've driven down the amount of land that we need to produce corn that can go to cattle feed, human food uses, biofuels, all the other stuff we use corn for. So that shrinks the footprint of beef's impacts, if you will, that's related to corn every time corn farmers do a better job. So again, these two things are, are tied together. So in terms of the feedlot management side, of course, we do use antibiotics in uh, animal agriculture. This is a definitely a controversial or contentious topic. Uh, so one, just a little bit of preview for people if they're wondering about like the choices they have when they purchase beef. If you buy organic beef, of course, that one of the criteria for USDA certified organic is animals can never be treated with any antibiotics, even if they're ill, right, and end up in an organic uh, program. Um, and you'll also see beef sometimes labeled as like never ever. Um, and that's usually referring to they've never been treated with antibiotics or had any sort of hormone treatment as well. Um, and very similar to organic in terms of production system, but the feed itself has not been grown organically. That's kind of the difference between never ever and organic. So when we think about uh, antibiotics in um, animal ag and in beef specifically, as you alluded to, there has been a change with the FDA and guidance where no medically, human medically important antibiotics can be used for growth promotion in animal agriculture, right? That's a change that happened a year and a half ago. Um, the class of antimicrobials you referenced earlier called ionophores, they actually are still used in animal agriculture um, and in cattle production. They are actually not used in human medicine. Uh, ionophores. They've been used for about 40 years, starting first in the poultry industry and then, then in beef uh, and cattle production as well. Um, so that class of, of antibiotics or antimicrobials more specifically, um, it does make up a bulk of what gets used in the beef industry. Those ionophores, again, not human medically important. It's used for uh, preventing coccidiosis in cattle, but also has benefits, co-benefits of improving feed efficiency, and that is why it's used in the, in the beef cattle industry. Um, and in terms of other antibiotics that need to used, the ones that we really care about, right, human medically important antibiotics, um, those are given to animals in terms of standpoint of treating animals for an illness, and they have to be used with veterinary oversight in the United States. Um, so it is a challenging topic. I think it's it's always good to step back and say like nobody supports antimicrobial resistance and everybody agrees like that is a serious issue. So that's something that the beef industry, 
all of animal ag is seriously looking at and finding alternatives, right, for antimicrobials, especially those human medically important ones. Because again, even if the link between animal ag and then any sort of resistance is very slim or there's not any real clear evidence, uh, we still have a responsibility to try to do the right thing and reduce use. But for the, again, for the most part, it's about treating animals who are ill and it's done with veterinary oversight and guidance. And it gets into, if you don't want to use, if you don't want to have those, uh, those products used, again, you have never ever in organic choices of beef, um, but it is also a bit of an animal welfare issue too. If you have an animal that's sick, just like if you or I were sick, right? You want to be able to treat that animal and get it better. Right? And that's just like it's a tool for human medicine, it's a tool for veterinary medicine as well. Um, so for, for the hormone piece, uh, most cattle in the United States, again, if they go through a feed yard, um, they have been given a hormone implant um, and those have been in use for 50 years in the United States. Uh, so those are gonna be very small pellets that get put behind the animal's ear. Um, and there's slow release. Typically, many of the ones used today, the animals will be implanted upon their arrival to the feed yard, and that, that's it. And then uh, there's, no, there's no necessarily withdrawal time for those products because, as you alluded to, there's actually no discernible difference in the product itself, right? It's not really changing anything in the product. If you're worried about eating estrogens, a lot more plant foods have way higher levels of estrogens than any of your animal source foods that you're going to consume. Um, but just to follow up on both the antibiotics and the hormones, uh, USDA has oversight of all of our uh, meat production in the United States. And one of the things they do is surveillance and, and monitoring for antibiotics and hormone levels. So they do test animals as they're in those uh, slaughter facilities and they report any violators and it's a big deal if somebody is found to be a violator. So there is there is oversight and surveillance of our food system that I think people sometimes don't realize that we are. It's not just a, an honor system, right? There is actual checking as well. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited next month I'm gonna have the opportunity to speak in front of the U.S. Cattlemen's Association. And so I get to go out and, you know, visit some ranches and stuff like that. And I think, you know, if more people were actually do that and see these operations, you know, we would have a much different discussion. But, you know, obviously everybody lives in the city and we, you know, we grow up watching cartoons and we have no we're so out of touch with how our food is produced. And I think that's just a huge issue when it comes to some of these things. And it becomes, you know, this propaganda, emotion filled sort of stuff that I see see all the time. Um, there's another. So let's talk about sick animals, because I am you know, told by some people that animals in feed yards are tend to be much sicker than ones that aren't is there is there some truth to that is that where, where does that where does that sort of information come from so yeah there's a lot of um, a lot of similarities if you will between what can happen to animals and us in terms of triggers for, for illness and so as I mentioned earlier the way the beef industry is kind of set up it's very segmented right we have cow-calf operations and then we have feed yard operations and sometimes cattle have to travel a long distance in their life, right? A major cow-calf producing state is Florida, which most people don't think of. Uh, but most of those cattle in Florida are going to end up out in the Midwest or the Western United States somewhere to be finished. And so what's important about that is there's transportation and there's co-mingling, right? So if we think about what happens when you send your kid off to kindergarten the first time and they get exposed to a bunch of new people, right, they can potentially get sick, right? That's stressor. 
um, and, and weaning and being separated from mom can be a stressor. And so that is one of our challenges within the industry is managing for that. Um, and that's why animals that do go to the feed yard, that's why it's so important that the health crew and those cowboys that are on the operation are checking those animals and making sure that they're okay. So um, again, that's, that's why you may see more antibiotic use in that stage of their life. It's at those transition points, again, similar to in, in people, if there's a stressor that's a potential for those animals to get ill. And our goal as animal managers and as people that do research in this area is to say, and give information to producers to say, how can you manage better uh, to reduce that stress, right? And there are lots of things, and actually weaning is a great area of research or an example of research where there's been a lot of work looking at different ways to wean cattle. Uh, instead of just taking the calf away from mom and having the calf beller and, you know, and be all stressed out, uh, there's different methods called, one is called fence line weaning, where the animals are still close to each other, but you have to use a good fence, <laughs> a strong fence, and keep the calf away from mom in terms of not being able to suckle anymore. So that's a way for us to still have that behavioral aspect of keeping the animals together and they're less stressed because they can visually see each other even though they're not, uh, the calf is not nursing. So that's one example. There's another where you can use essentially a little nose flap in the calf's uh, nose so when they go up to try to nurse on mom, they can't actually reach the, the teat to get any milk. We call that two-stage two stage weaning, essentially separating the milk aspect from the behavior aspect. So that's that's just one example of kind of the research that's being done to try to address that key reality, that it is a stressful situation for a calf to leave its ranch of origin and get transported to another location. Um, when we tell people about that, sometimes they're like, well, why do we do that, right? Why, why do we have feed yards in one part of the country and cattle you know, being raised in other parts? And it's really, again, it comes down to the climate and, um, and where the feeds are available, right? So there's a lot of cattle feeding in what we call the high plains in the United States. So the West Texas, Western Kansas, Eastern Colorado, Western Nebraska. And it's really a good place for cattle feeding because it's dry. You're close to sources of feed. And that dry aspect is key to what you had mentioned earlier, right, about animals standing in their manure or whatever it may be. Uh, when, when they're in a drier environment, that's better for their hoof health. That's just better from a management standpoint. So. And then the cow-calf production, it really depends on where we have grass in the U.S. You know, and that's pretty much all 50 states, and we have cow-calf production in all 50 states. So that's kind of how the, the industry is set up. And one more thing on your on your point at the beginning of that question of, like, well, we all live in cities now. We do have a, a website with the National Cattlemen's called beefitswhat'sfordinner.com. Gives you all sorts of information on recipes and how to cook beef, but we also have a section on how beef is raised in the U.S. And we've made an effort over the last... A year or so to do a lot more videos to show people this is how it is, right? A big feed yard, small operations, this is what it looks like. Part of that we have actually 360 videos where you can put it on your phone, you know, if you have those, go those uh, goggles and do the whole uh, full sensory experience, everything but the smell. <laughs> uh, and so that is something if people are interested, definitely check out that website because those videos are there and you can tour a 50,000 head feed yard virtually uh, from the comfort of your own home with those videos. Yeah, I mean, it's good to see that stuff. And I, and I, and I just feel like, you know, the, 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 
the beef production she needs needs more PR. I mean, you know, I think more positive PR because we're getting, we're, you know, you're being overwhelmed with this negative stuff, and I think there's a lot that can be done to sort of get some of the more sort of the reality out there. What do you say to, you know, uh, there's people like Richard Branson, Bill Gates that are investing heavily in this synthetic, you know, cell cultured meat that's that, that, that they think is going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to, uh, you know, get rid of our quote unquote addiction to cows, um, you know, within 30 years or something like that. And, and then there'll be no more animals raised for, for food. We're going to go to this world of, you know, purely synthetic type meat. What are your concerns with that? Are there any environment, negative environmental impacts to that? And uh, how do you combat that sort of, because there's a lot of people out there that are all for that. There's like 100%. We think animals animals should not be eaten. They should not be made, quote unquote, slaves. You know, we hear, we have this rhetoric all the time. And so what is a what is a good counter message or, or at least a, a sort of a, a long view about this stuff? And my understanding is, you know, beef demand is not going away. I mean, it's, you know, certainly as we see places like China and some of these other countries as they, they become more and more wealthy, that it's only driving up the the, uh, the demand. And so, we, I, you know, my view is probably we're going to continue to make more and more beef over time. But what, again, I'm not in this industry. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on those things? Yeah, so that's a great example of kind of what you just alluded to. There's reality, and then there's a lot of media hype. Um, so reality is beef demand, both in the United States and globally, is very strong, and people will continue to eat the real product. Uh, most of these products that are out there, when you're talking about the synthetic meat, of being more cultured product, like actually growing cell cultures, that's what a lot of these people are talking about. Um, there are a lot of companies out there. There are a lot of rich people that have put cash to these companies to help them cash flow, no doubt. Um, but none of those products actually exist yet, right? And supposedly in the next year, they're going to have products that are available. Um, usually the argument you hear in favor of those products is saying, well, with this system, we don't have to have an animal walking around and grow a, a skeletal or a, you know bones and all this other stuff, right, that go with the, the cattle. But of course, if you're growing cells in an intensive, you know, facility, it's going to take a lot of electricity. It's going to you're going to have to feed the cells pure amino acids, right, for them to grow. Um, and I think that's one of the key aspects that's kind of overlooked when we talk about beef, and really its value proposition to our food system, the value proposition of ruminants to our food system. That a lot of these people that criticize uh, beef and ruminant agriculture specifically. I don't think they actually understand our system very well, but they are very confident in criticizing it, right? <laughs> Even though they don't understand the system. So just to emphasize what I'm talking about there, when we think about that ruminant environment for cattle, they can eat really crappy sources of protein, right? Really poor quality sources of protein. I mean, some of that stuff, if you driving in California right now with grass, it's really brown, right? That stuff may only be 7% crude proteins really low, not a good amino acid composition. But those animals, because they have those microbes, can take that and make a high-quality protein source. And so when we look at the whole U.S. beef industry, when we look at the protein that the cattle eat versus what they produce in the form of beef, they actually make more high-quality protein from the standpoint of amino acid composition, digestibility for the human food supply than they use. So that's something that we are really trying to emphasize, what we call upcycling in the industry. And... Ultimately, despite what these people are investing in, you can't be a ruminant for that, right? And that's kind of why they evolved, right? They're the end product of 3.5 billion years of evolution. People in a lab 
in San Francisco did not come up with something better in the last two years, right? That's that's a very bold assumption, but and God bless them for it, but I don't think they're there yet, right? Um, but again, there's a lot of misconception, and if people have a very surface-level understanding of this, then they can kind of fall victim to some of those flashy, you know, things that are being said about the future of food and about animal agriculture. But what's absolutely clear is even if you have an ethical you know, view that you don't want to eat animals, that's cool. Um, but we need animals in our food system. We need plant and animal agriculture working together. We need that cycling of nutrients, preservation of soils, all those different things where animals and plants work together. So it's not, I get a little kumbaya about it, right? But it's not this whole either or black or white thing. Out to be. I think we're asking and talking about all the wrong things if you really care about sustainability and food. It's not going to be, uh, you know, some miracle solution created in a lab. That's not, we already know what to do right. We just need to do more of it and, again, do more research to help those countries out that need to get better, help our own producers out when they need to get better. That's what we need to do, not not these flashy things. But rich people invest in that, so <laughs> that's, that's kind of where we're at in that situation. Yeah, I, I had read uh, that paper. I think it was Don Lehman that, that put out that paper talking about upcycling. And I think that's a very important concept, you know, to understand that protein is probably the most important macronutrient we eat as human beings. And when we have, you know, we, we, we can talk about we can grow, you know, more calories, perhaps with nutrition, I mean, with, with resources, uh, you know, just planting crops. That, that may be true. But the problem is they're very nutrient poor calories, particularly when it when it comes to things like protein, which are so essential to our our health and well-being, and so I think it's it's, it's just a, a point that I can't emphasize enough that you know these animals are upcyclers. They take a relatively crappy type of protein and turn it into much more bioavailable, much more usable protein. And I think that's one of the biggest points that I think people should start to understand about this stuff. And hopefully, we can make a quick, flashy message, you know, <laughs> that people understand that, you know. And I think that's. Uh, because you know people only only understand these 10 second sound bites you know and so it's, it's easier to show a picture of some pig in a pen squealing uh you know that, that has this emotional appeal but there, there has to be some sort of uh something coming back from the uh industry saying look this is what we do this is what's important about that and so i just want to just re-emphasize that point yeah that's, that's a great point. Uh, that is what's challenging about this whole subject area and can be frustrating is uh, there's a lot of emotions involved, involved in it, right? Uh, as a scientist, I like to be very evidence-based, but most people aren't wired that way, and so that's just that's just the reality that we deal with. Um, and again, if somebody has an ethical you know, view that they don't want to eat animals, we, we as the industry aren't like, thou shalt eat you know, 30-ounce steak every day. I mean, what, do whatever you do. You do right but we're just trying to provide the accurate information of like this is reality this is what actually happens because there's a tremendous amount of misinformation about how food gets to play in the united states yeah you know it's it's always an interesting topic and it's it's one of those things where i think you know as as humans we like to take our ethics and kind of uh you know portray those onto other people's ethics and I mean, the reality is, like, regardless of whether you decide to eat meat or not, you know, there's there's gonna be there's gonna be death, and there's gonna be, uh, you know, if you're eating anything, animals are gonna die, just like humans are gonna die. And I think it's when we remove ourselves from that cycle and try to look at ourselves as more or less a god figure and less of a part of the system, 
you know, that's where we run into some of these problems where people get disconnected from, you know, what happens to animals when we just let them do their own thing. I mean, the reality is it can oftentimes be a much harsher end to their to their life than, you know, living a, a long life on a, you know, a, a cattle ranch and then ultimately being taken to slaughter as opposed to being in the in the wild and maybe not even be making it past the first year of your existence. Yeah, and I, I, that always makes me think. There's a great quote from Dr. Temple Grandin, who's right up the road here at, at Colorado State, and she's always like, nature is cruel, but we don't have to be, right? And so that is really what it is about animal husbandry and trying to do the right thing, and some of these things that we've talked about is um, death is inevitable. It is inevitable for us, even though we'd like to <laughs> put it off as long as possible, but we don't have to be cruel on the way there, right? And we, we should, and we have a responsibility to give an animal a humane life and a humane end of life as well. And so, um, again, that's something that we, we give tours. We do tours where we go through large slaughter facilities with people. And honestly, their, their eyes are always opened and their minds are usually changed when they go through those facilities. It's kind of like if we could just take 325 million Americans on that full supply chain tour, we would be we'd be golden, right? We wouldn't have any of these issues, but that's our challenge is it's a, it's a very small segment of the population that's involved in production ag. Um, and so trying to, to bridge that gap and demonstrate that we all have these tremendous, you know, huge number of shared values, even though we like to focus on everything that we're arguing about. Um, every, everybody can agree on some of these basic things uh, at the end of the day, I would hope. Yeah, I'm, that's uh, th- that's one thing I wanted to ask you about because I mean, there's so many. You know, we 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 see these like you know these hidden camera videos posted by you know animal rights uh, uh, activists, and you know I think again that's what that's what gets out there. That's what's on the internet. That's what people see. That's what's on social media. And I just wonder, you know, if if I say, hey, I want to go to Harris Ranch and call up and say, hey, I want to tour your facility. Are you finding that most of these operations are pretty receptive to that? Are they are they gun shy from letting people go in there go in there and see it? I mean, I think it's great. And then I know you talked about Temple Grandin. Uh, for those who don't know, Temple Grandin was famous. You know, she was autistic, but then got involved with the uh, humane treatment of animals and, and and their slaughter. And I actually saw her speak. I've got an autistic son, so I went to see her speak several years ago and met her. Very lovely woman. But um, so so if if say say the average person listening to this says, hey, I I don't really know the answer. I don't I don't believe Dr. Place, but but maybe maybe she's telling the truth, or I don't believe you know Dr. Baker, or or you know I, I like the, the the vegan guys. How does how does somebody really go and see? Can you can you just call up a ranch and say, hey, I'd like to tour it, and 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 what's 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 the result of that? Yeah, so a lot of, actually, most states have what are called state beef councils. Like for California, you have the California-Nevada Beef Council that's based up in Sacramento. And so there are opportunities through that organization, and if you go on their website and, and contact them, that they could connect you with a rancher that's in your local area, or even if they're having a more formal event where they're inviting people to do a farm tour, most states will do that. Um, so, again, beef councils will do that. Oftentimes, like Cooperative Extension, you know, California Cooperative Extension will do tours, farm tours. Um, but that is a resource for you if you want to see it with your own eyes. And I definitely understand that, again, for, for people because, like, you're just getting bombarded with all this stuff. I mean, how are you supposed to figure out what's actually correct? Um, when it comes to, like, undercover videos, I mean, that is a really, a lot of times, I mean, it's, the things that are in those videos are they're horrible, right? I mean, nobody's going to defend that. It's, it's sometimes just outright abuse. 
Um, and sometimes outright abuse shown clipped clipped in with like normal normal practices, right? That kind of uh, uh, changes people's perception of what we what we do on farms. So that is a, a challenging area. And again, that kind of comes back to like what we said, our, our pro program where we try to tra train people in humane practices like beef quality assurance. We do um, what we call stockmanship and stewardship training programs all over the country uh, where we bring in experts on animal handling for producers, like how to animal, handle animals best with a horse or on foot. You know, how do you work with people uh, in the best way and keep the animals calm and most humane? And that's just a challenge because it's a constant thing. You know, it's, it's training people and getting people up to speed on them because human beings are human beings. And if we think about all the animals and all the people that work in animal agriculture every day, there are literally hundreds of millions of human-animal interactions that take place every single day. <laughs> so for us to try to say we're going to guarantee that every single one is perfect, I can't say that with confidence because I'm we're not monitoring it, right? There's no way for us to actually do that. So our best strategy is what, what we're doing of training and making sure that, you know, bad actors get the heck out of the industry, right? Because that, that's just, if you're somebody that abuses animals, you should not be around animals. I mean, that's just a clear, clear situation. Um, but if people's only exposure is a terrible video to animal agriculture and they don't see, again, the hundreds of millions of interactions that day that were positive, then that's going to color people's perceptions of how things are. So it's just kind of the world we live in. Of, it's not just animal ag. It's like any institution, right? There's lots of erosion of trust and people see bad things and assume that's just the way it is when that's not necessarily the case. Dr. Place, let me just uh, just... If there's, can you, uh, you know, it might be interesting, just like, just kind of a, some general take-home points, like maybe three or four of your top sort of facts that people aren't aware of that you can maybe just kind of go so we can have like a little real quick talking point. And then is there anything that we didn't cover that you think people need to know about concerning, uh, you know, animal, animal agriculture that I think is, is a big misconception? Yeah, so on the, the last part of your question first, I think, you know, we kind of talked about water footprints, carbon footprints, uh, this upcycling concept. I think the other thing that you often hear about is the land that's used for beef, right, land footprints. And it just, it takes so much land for beef, we should just, you know, eat soybeans or whatever it might be, right, that has a lower land footprint. I don't think people really realize that, of course, land footprints, of all the footprints, they're probably the most useless, in my opinion, of, like actual informational value, right? They don't tell you if land is suitable for one use versus another. They don't tell you if land is being used in a way that's actually good and sustainable for the long term. And they don't tell you if a certain plot of land or an acre of land is used for multiple purposes, right? So land use and land footprints, again, they're darn near useless as a metric. Um, and in the United States, it's absolutely clear that of course beef is gonna have a higher land footprint because most of the land used for beef can't be used for anything else, right? Where I'm sitting pretty much all the way out to you guys in the Pacific, like the land is rangeland. It's too arid, it's too rocky, it's too steep. You can't plow it. Uh, so you have to use a ruminant animal like cattle or sheep to actually convert the sun solar energy that's locked up in those plants to a, to a product that we can use. So that's one of those major misconceptions that's out there is land use. Land is not interchangeable. There's not a lot of land that we're using for cattle production that could be used for other things. And even that corn that we're feeding cattle, 
uh, as we talked about with this upcycling concept, we're actually making more protein by running that corn through cattle than if we ate the corn directly. So that's kind of a win-win situation as well from that standpoint of land use. Um, in terms of takeaways, I think related to those greatest hits, just for, for people to remember, you know, if you're in the United States, beef production is 2% of greenhouse gas emissions, transportation is 26. So cattle versus cars, it's not even close, right? We, we produce greenhouse gas emissions, but we are not the number one source in this country, and it's not the number one source in the world either. That's just false. It's incorrect information. Um, I think the, the key thing, though, is this upcycling piece, right? The value proposition of beef is we take things that can't be used for humans and we convert it into high-quality protein source, iron, zinc, right? And all the other things we get from cattle like leather, pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, confectionery stuff, all the things that people don't realize, you know, when you're eating a gummy bear that you're actually partially eating a cow, uh, but you are. So there's lots of other uses for cattle um, that go into that upcycling piece. And I think that's really key, too, is we take stuff that can't be used and we make a high-quality product. That's what upcycling is. Um, and on that water use piece, you know, a U.S. average, we're around 260 gallons of blue water use per pound of beef in the U.S. But again, that water's not destroyed, right? It's just part of the water cycle. And, and helping people understand everything is a cycle when it comes to agriculture. If it's not one or the other, it's how do we make the whole system better? How do you make the whole plate better? Not just saying, throw this food item off your plate to become more sustainable. That's not that's not the answer in, in the big scheme of things. Perfect. Well, that was that's very educational, and I appreciate you coming on. And I'm I'm trying to involve more and more people from these different, you know, these different fields because it ultimately we're all related. And I think you know, uh, health depends upon food, and, and food depends upon people making it. And I think we should understand that more. And it's such a pleasure. Do you have when we have you know? I, I think we're going to get uh, Dr. Mitlauner on here next week. Um, I believe that's when we schedule. We haven't confirmed his time yet, but is there anything specific we should we should delve in with him? Because I know you guys kind of overlap a little bit. Is something that he might be uh, an area we may really want to focus on with him? Yeah, I think what he's great for is talking about a lot of uh, similar topics. Of course, so I, just a disclosure, right? I trained under Dr. Mitlauner, right? So I'm one of his former PhD students. Um, but he has great examples of what research he's doing right now at, at UC Davis. You know, that's an example of, okay, what are we going to do to help people get better? Um, and he has some really unique stories and aspects of um, some of the, the issues that are specific to California. Of course, air quality issues. There is a lot of uh, interest in the past and, and ideas that cattle were a major cause of smog. Right, so he's done a lot of research in that area too. All things air quality um, is is really uh, Dr. Mittlinger's specialty. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much. I don't. We I, we appreciate your generosity with your time. I hope you uh, in, enjoyed the experience. And uh, like I said, we'll have this out and push this up on social media and try to get the word out. Um, uh, maybe maybe have you on down the road again sometime as more topics come up because I think this is there's just there's just so much you know obviously it's not a, it's not a very uh, black and white topic there's so much subtlety and nuance in that and so as we all kind of you know get our uh, education about this stuff there's just more stuff we'll have to ask question wise but uh, thank you so much for coming on yeah thank you for having me yeah thanks a bunch Dr Place I think this one might be one of our more needed to hear podcasts to date. So I, I'm sure our, our listeners will be very 
very, very thankful for your time and information. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Hey everyone. Sean and I are excited to announce that human performance outliers podcast has partnered with thrive market. Thrive is an online grocery store that focuses on making high quality grocery shopping easy by going to thrivemarket.com backslash HPO and shopping. You not only support the HPO podcast, but will also receive 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices. On top of that, with every annual membership, Thrive will donate a free annual membership to low-income family, teacher, or veteran. If you don't make up your membership fee and savings, Thrive will refund your membership fee. The link can be found in the show notes. Thanks for your support. Hey folks, thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd. That's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker, 1967. That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R, 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast.